Welcome uh, to this activity organized by the Latin American Studies Program. I'm Dr. Raul Diego Rivera Hernandez, and I am the author of Narratives of Vulnerability in Mexico's War on Drugs. And it's a pleasure to be here today with you, uh, presenting my book with two great scholars uh, and very good friends of mine. So I'm going to be first introducing Dr. Silvia Nagy Segmi. And then I will be introducing our other speaker later when she starts discussing the book. So first, Dr. Silvia Segmi, she's a professor emerita of Hispanic and Cultural Studies at Villanova University. Uh, she's retired uh, since 2018, but she keeps an active research agenda. And let me just tell you what Silvia has been done, has been doing in the past years. Um, she has published Global Academy Engaging Public Intellectual Discourse in 2013 and Truth to Power Public Intellectuals in and Out of Academy in 2012. Both books were credited with Dr. Karen Hollis. Then she published Perennial Empire in 2011 and Colonization or Globalization 2009, both credited with Chantal Sabus and Moros en la Costa, Orientalismo en America Latina 2008. She also has this book, uh, Paradoxical Citizenship, Edward Said, 2008-2006, and uh, a very important book uh, by Silvia, Democracy in Chile, The Legacy of September 11, 1973, was published in 2005 with Fernando Leiva and won the Arthur P. Whitaker Prize. Uh, so thank you very much to Silvia for, for being here, for accepting presenting my book. And, uh, and then as I mentioned uh, before, I will be introducing my colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Isis Sadek. So thank you um, for being here and hopefully you will enjoy the book presentation. It is my pleasure to present this book whose importance cannot be overstated. I am honored to do so. <clears throat> Narratives of Vulnerability in Mexico, War on Drugs, by my friend and colleague Raul Diego Rivera Hernandez, in future references Raul, because he's, we are friends, and also it's a lot shorter, um, artfully translated to English by Isis Sade, my co-presenter here. It was just published by Palgrave Macmillan, an eminent scholarly publisher. <clears throat> People in the United States are familiar with the US war on drugs, but less so with Mexico's, and above all, with the extent of US involvement in the latter. As in any war, the drug war also has countless victims, <clears throat> like those represented in this book, victims of the violence unleashed by both the drug cartels and government forces upon Mexicans and Central American migrants passing through Mexico. In history courses, students often hear that history is written by the victors, by the powerful. The oppressed, the poor, women, children, the indigenous are forgotten or disregarded as so-called collateral damage. <clears throat> it is partly why this book is so invaluable because it brings to the forefront the consequences of drug war. We see only in news and headlines and Hollywood as film series and documentaries, that is in reality suffered by individuals 
who have no part in it and who are the nameless victims of violence it causes. One way to empower victims is to name them, just like they do in Black Lives Matter chants. Say his name, say her name, and to tell their story, thus giving them an individuality that leads us, the, leader, the readers, to empathize with each victim. One death is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. This saying has been attributed to several people, most notoriously to Joseph Stalin, who would know it from real experience. The COVID pandemic that killed 211,000 Americans and one million people worldwide is a heartbreaking illustration of this. Victims should not be forgotten and placed in the dustbin of history. Everyone is someone's child, parent, brother, relative, or friend. <clears throat> Every human life is equally valuable. No one illustrated this better than 17th century British poet John Donne, eternalized in the epigraph of Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls. And I quote, any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never sent to know for whom the bell tolls. It is for thee. End of quote. <clears throat> Raoul in his book goes much beyond chronicling sad victim stories. He also celebrates the courage and bravery of the people who are making sacrifices to uncover the truth and run brave risks in their resistance to the most powerful forces on both sides of the drug war. <clears throat> this book is a hopeful and positive account of the resistance and survival amid the injustice of oppression and the horrors of violence. Vulnerability in the title of the book does not reflect weakness, but a certain defenselessness. Citizens of a country should be defended by their government and by the institutions of the state against random violence caused by criminal elements. Instead, what we see in Mexico today is a government that abandoned its responsibility to its citizens and lets women, journalists, bystanders die by the thousands. And in some instances, it even partakes and profits from the criminal activity instead of using its powers to shield the people from it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Discourses of power are often articulated by euphemisms. Violent repression of dissent are often described as matters of national security. Excesses of power by police and military are often referred to as maintaining law and order. Narratives of vulnerability challenges these concepts and exposes their falsehoods. The Mexican government's strategy to control the viciousness of the drug cartels was to escalate the violence whereby innocent civilians were caught in the middle and became victims of abuses by either side. This policy, evidently a failure, cost 300,000 human lives in Mexico since 2006. According to the 
1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights by the United Nations, to which society is supposed to adhere today, human rights are, and I quote the document itself, inherent to all human beings, regardless of race, sex, nationality, ethnicity, language, religion, or any other status. Human rights include the right to life and liberty, freedom from slavery and torture, freedom of opinion and expression, the right to work and education, and many others. End of quote. These rights are being violated daily in Mexico and many other places. The violence in Mexico is so extreme that some scholars, among them Alejandro Anaya Munoz and Barbara Frey, consider it unparalleled in, his, in the country's recent history. Why recent? Because Mexico had its share of tragic violence throughout its history, starting <clears throat> with pre-Columbian conflicts, followed by the bloody Spanish colonization in the 16th century, the independence war from Spain in the 19th, and the 10-year Mexican Revolution in the early 20th centuries. And now, this extended war on drugs, to mention just the most prominent historical moments of bloodshed in the history of Mexico. One of the reasons why the war on drugs lasts so long is the lack of accountability of the perpetrators. One judicial instrument of accountability Raul proposes in the book is the so-called transitional justice that includes a series of legal tools to deal with the crisis of this magnitude. These may include truth and reconciliation commissions, criminal prosecutions, reparation programs, and other legal remedies. <clears throat> As Raul asserts in the book, Mexico's war on drugs was initiated following the US model that was formally started by President Nixon in 1971. Following Nixon's speech declaring drugs as, and I quote, America's number one enemy, the press coined the phrase war on drugs. Contrary to popular beliefs that war on drugs in Mexico was initiated only in the 90s when Colombian drug cartels moved their operations to Mexico, narratives of vulnerability gives a clear historic, historical account of the beginning of the drug war during the Cold War in the 1970s, when US expansionist policies towards Latin America, including Mexico, under the codename Operation Condor, were carried out by the Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Reagan administrations for over two decades. In Mexico, after the 70-year rule of the pre-party, growing democratization allowed other parties access to power and loosened their nexus between the government and the drug, drug trafficking organizations in the future DTO. Eventually, the post-pre governments lost control over the DTOs. This coincided with two other factors, the growing demand for cocaine as drug of choice in the US and the increasing US intervention in Colombia's drug war that forced the cartels to look for alliances with drug trafficking organizations in other countries. 
Mexico's proximity to the main drug market made it the perfect choice. The increasingly militarized fight I'm sorry, against DTOs by the Fox and Calderon administrations from 2000 to 2012 in Mexico claimed many, many civilian victims subsequently dehumanized by the perpetrators, their death being qualified as collateral damage and characterized by the government forces as evidence for their military success over the DTOs. Public mourning of victims was forcefully discouraged by the state and branded these acts as signs of collaboration with the DTOs. In 2011, however, something changed. With the killing of the son of a well-known poet, Javier Sicilia, the politicization of public pain began. The foundation of Movement for Peace with Justice and Dignity and its support for the Caravan for Peace in the US in 2012 that crossed 14 states and stopped in 27 cities illustrated the transnational nature of the war on drugs, while emphasizing the economic roots of the problem, the link between neoliberal policies and the escalating violence in Mexico that continues until today with very little or no accountability. The theoretical framework of narratives of vulnerability is based upon the philosopher Judith Butler's concept of vulnerability, a collectively shared condition that affects certain segments of the population more than others, contingent upon the possession of power. A body, Butler states, is that of an individual but also a social phenomenon, for example, body politic. Vulnerability of an individual is easily understood, but it may also affect the social body when it includes a community at large. <clears throat> Violence in Mexico does not mark only Mexicans. It also affects Central American migrants who cross Mexico in their way to the US, fleeing the violence in their own country. In the 1980s, Central America was the focus of US activities fueled by the Cold War. The Nicaraguan Contra War, the military support of various dictatorships in Guatemala, El Salvador, were examples to covert and even unconcealed US interventions in Central America, like the one in Panama in 1989. Millions fled the violence in those countries finding their way to the US. Remember the film El Norte? However, the children of immigrants who made it to US cities already traumatized by the violence and were not very well supervised by their parents who had to work several jobs to make ends meet converged to violent gangs, which they felt offered them a home, a place to belong to. One of the most notorious gangs name is La Familia that illustrates that point, this point. With the increasing enforcement of immigration laws and the growing number of deport deportation in the late 1990s, many of these children who were grown-ups by then found themselves in the country of their origin. Many of them did not even remember it because they 
were brought to the U.S. as babies or small children. Once they found themselves back there, they continued the only profession they knew how to do, gangs. Today, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador are the most dangerous countries in Latin America where gangs rule, constantly threaten public safety, and recruit children as young as 10 to 12 years old. <clears throat> to avoid recruitment, parents of targeted children flee the country with them or send them alone to the US. This is how a large number of unaccompanied children showed up at the US border during the Obama administration. Mexico's war on drugs has been widely represented in different cultural products, scholarly books, novels, films, documentaries, and series. Narratives of vulnerability draws upon an impressive variety of mediatic forms and discourses, journalistic, memorialistic, legal, historic, and narrative, as well as social media, audio, and visual materials to illustrate the plight of the often nameless victims. In Mexico, one of the most horrific cases is the 2014 disappearance of 43 college students from Ayotzinapa Teachers College in Tixla, the state of Guerrero, discussed at length in chapter four of the book. Beyond the fact that the mass disappearance of 43 young men is a tragedy of biblical proportions, it also exemplifies the active collaboration between local, state, and federal police, as well as the military, with organized crime. This counters the notion of having two sides in this war on drugs fighting each other. Raoul's book successfully incorporates all the complexities in the thorough analysis of these events. One of the many consequences of violence, of the, of the violence, is the transformation of those who'd lost loved ones into what Raoul calls experts without credentials. The term reminds me of John Beverly's term, uh, his characterization of Rigoberta Menchu Tum as an organic intellectual. The Guatemalan indigenous organizer rewarded by the Nobel Peace Prize in 1992 was propelled to be a leader by history of losses and tragedies touching her life as well as those of her community. Who are these experts without credentials? The parents and relatives of the disappeared and the murdered who are searching for answers that government officials are unable or unwilling to give them. To have some closure, they need to know what happened to their loved ones. In their extended search, they become parts of advocacy groups and learn about forensic techniques and other research methods. This work is not without risk. Those in office who have something to hide will use their power to suppress these inquiries. However, the desire for the truth defies the risks, and investigation by family members continue with the help of journalists who literally put their lives on the line to discover the truth. 
According to the International Federation of Journalists, in 2019, Mexico was the deadliest country for journalists, even more so than countries at war like Syria or Afghanistan. In conclusion, I would like to add that this excellent book is both a historical analysis of human rights violation, as well as a thoughtful scrutiny of literary and filmic representation of the violence that still rages in Mexico and Central America. It is a painful celebration of the value and sanctity of all human lives. Thank you for your patience. Thank you, Silvia, for, for, for those kind words about the book. I, I, I really appreciate it. It's, it's, a, it's a very beautiful reading of the book, and that's one of the very important aspects that I want to highlight is theoretical framework or this framework of human rights in, in the context of Mexico. So thank you for, for, for your reading, and thank you for providing such beautiful words. You are so welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Um, now I'm, I'm going to be presenting one of my favorite colleagues and friends. Uh, we have been working together for the last two years and a half. And now that we finished the book, we, we miss each other, I think. Um, we were working very closely in this process of writing and translating and comparing those versions. Um, her name is Isi Sadek. And let me tell you, Isi Sadek works as a copy editor, translator, and writing coach with scholars active in Latin American studies from various perspectives. She's managing editor at the Journal of Latin American Studies and copy editor at the Journal Estudios Interdisciplinarios de America Latina. She's based in Canada. And a very last comment that I would have to say is that uh, I think this is the one who knows me better from my scholarly work and my scholarly trajectory. I think if somebody really wants to say something about what I have been working in the past years, Isis is the right person. So Isis, gracias por, por estar aquí. All right. Thank you very much, Raul. Thanks to everyone for taking the time to join us. Uh, I'd like to give a, a shout out to Sean Vigil, formerly of Palgrave Macmillan and currently working at Temple University. Thank you, Sean, for taking the time to join us and for welcoming this manuscript when it was a chapter draft and an idea uh, and, a, and a pretty solid proposal. Thank you, Sean. Uh, all right, uh, thank you, Silvia, for such an attentive reading of the book. It's a, it's a very good sign that uh, the book seems to stimulate so much and that people are really picking up on uh, some of the, the terms and the expressions that Raul and I discussed over several emails, sometimes over conversations, uh, to make sure that we got it right and to make sure that it was homogeneous across the manuscript and that what read in one chapter also conveyed in another chapter. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a learning experience and it's one that I treasure. So I would like to give a few brief remarks about how the book mediates in a variety of ways. It mediates between uh, the Mexican and Latin American sources that haven't yet been translated and that Raul draws upon and also the US English language and, and other English language sources. Uh, it mediates between Mexico and the U.S. Uh, and it also mediates between, I would say, the, the notion of victim and those who, who exercise power, who, make, who, who are responsible for the victim's suffering. 
uh, it also mediates between two very important phases in Raoul's research trajectory and uh, his scholarly career, and that's what I would like to begin talking about here. Um, I first met Raoul in early 2012 when he gave a job talk that was very convincing and very impassioned. Uh, it was strongly focused in his area of expertise back then, which was literary analysis and literary criticism. So Raoul discussed, I think, two or three Spanish and Mexican detective novels, uh, and he presented his in his analysis how the investigation into the crime and the resolution of the crime uh, revealed anxieties about the literary scene at the time and about publishing houses and in, in some how the how the publishing houses commercial or otherwise um, mediated the notions of literature and how that had to how, how that took the shape of a crime so why would this matter for this book well because i having observed raul as he progresses i think that he still tends to take the crime as a starting point right we're presented with the scene of a crime and the process of the novel is taking us through uh, how the figure of the detective or detectives, whether they're formally in that role or other people playing the role of the detective, try to untangle the motivations behind the crimes, the stakes, they dwell into the gray areas of the law and of justice and of what it means to be a victim as well. Uh, I think that, that that perspective and that work is still very present in the subsequent interest that Raul developed in social movements, right? For a couple of years, Raul began to just really pay attention to the country that he had left, which was still his area of study. Uh, in the aftermath of the 2012 presidential election, or during that campaign, I think, the cyber activism movement, Yo Soy 132, starts with a hashtag, drew Raul's attention, and that, I would say, was his first foray into social movements and cyber activism. Then I remember that he traveled uh, to Mexico. He had the guidance of the highly esteemed lawyer and activist Ruben Figueroa, and he met several activists along the way to accompany the caravan of Central American mothers. Again, this was his interest in social movements coming across. So this was clearly becoming an interest of scholarly research for Raúl. And I think that this book marks an important culmination and stepping stone in that it weds it combines both perspectives in a fruitful way. And now I am going to read from my notes. Uh, otherwise, I'm surely going to run over. Um, I do think that this book combines Raoul's training in literary criticism and analysis with a focus on social movement. And it does so specifically through the analysis of the cultural practices of these so-called victims, which he calls, which Raoul calls vulnerable subjects. Uh, this would, but, sorry, this book weds both facets by analyzing literary, testimonial, and filmic texts to shed light on the cultural practices that are created and mobilized when vulnerable subjects confront various forms of violations of their human rights. Uh, among other rights surveyed in this book, there's the right to life and integrity, the right to information, the right to movement, the right to freedom of expression as well. When the book is made available to an English language readership, it documents a crucial facet of the so-called war on drugs, particularly the variant that began in Mexico in earnest with, with the heightening of, of, of this militarized national security, national security agenda as it plays out across Mexico and the US. 
Typically, cultural productions in English about drug trafficking and power in Latin America tend to focus on narcos and their worlds. Cultural critique or scholarship, although they broaden their scope to the everyday, tend in turn to focus their attention on a series of figures linked to the drug trade and the attitudes ensuing from it, or cultural practices ensuing from it. Sicariato, for example, uh, Narco Corridos, television series. More recently, studies have come out in Spanish, uh, and I'm thinking here of two Mexican studies. One of them is Froilán Incisos, Nuestra, Nuestra Historia Narcotica, and the other one is Osvaldo Zavala's that Raúl uh, engages with in his book. These studies examine the cultural, social, and legal dimensions of drug trafficking, highlighting the state, the Mexican state, sorry, and the, the, and the U.S. state and security apparatus, we could say as well, analyzing their historical and contemporary roles and interest in criminalizing drug trafficking and spurring it. Raul's book in particular restores a key facet that is often ignored. By characterizing the war on drugs in Mexico as a necropolitical struggle, in other words, to use Achille Mbembe's formula, who may live and who must die, in characterizing the war on drug as a necropolitical struggle over the control of territories, information, and justice and truth, Raul's critical lens can shift away from those who are directly involved in drug trafficking to identify the effects of the war on drugs on three sectors of civil society. A chapter is dedicated to each of these sectors. Migrants, particularly Central American migrants in their crossing of Mexico. Journalists, either professional journalists or citizen journalists and relatives of the disappeared across Mexico. To detail how these victims' human rights are violated due to the effects of the war on drugs, Raul engages with the factual and sometimes statistical findings of scholars and non-governmental organizations who produce research on the situation of these victims. Then, building on this factual perspective, Raul adopts the lens of cultural analysis to shed a new light on these people's stories, lives, and trajectories. Furthermore, he dialogues with a series of critical and conceptual perspectives, sources, and voices from Mexico and Latin America. This book helps to make these perspectives known to an English language readership. Now, I'd like to discuss these cultural practices a little bit more in detail. Cultural practices that are born of one's vulnerability and that, that these sectors of civil societies use to, 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 to transform their, their vulnerability into a source of action, strength, and ultimately of, into a way of, of, of reclaiming collective rights. Whether it is in the literary portrayal of migrants in transit, in the reworking of the chronicle genre by journalists who reflect on the dangerous conditions in which they work, or in the short films and first-person narratives portraying the situation and activism of relatives of disappeared persons, Raúl has built a compelling but atypical body of works through which he reconstructs the cultural practices that these vulnerable subjects develop to find strength and agency in their situation. A particular strength of this book is how it details how cultural practices are connected to human rights violations and details the activism that is deployed on various scales, local, national, or cross-border to combat these violations or their effects. For Raul, documentary film, testimony, the chronicle, cyber activism, and literature become ways to listen. 
So what is it that we hear in this book? We hear the scraping of the earth by a regular citizen who surveys a dangerous site in the search for a disappeared relative and the relatives of others. We hear a woman as she puts on her lab coat and scrapes a sample to store in a locally kept database of genetic samples. We hear the sound of freedom as the kidnapped Salvadoran migrant manages to escape from weeks of being held captive in her Mexican kidnapper's home. We hear the words lovingly spoken at a ceremony to bury the remains of student teacher Julio Cesar Mondragon after an investigative odyssey. Sorry. We hear one journalist calling her colleague to check on him as he prepares to enter into a dangerous area to look into a story. We hear the sound of a mother threading with a needle the name of her disappeared son as she sits in a public square surrounded by others. These are cultural practices through which these vulnerable subjects create a new sense of the public, of what is public, that has been shattered by the war on drugs in Mexico and its effects. Thank you, Raul, for under undertaking this research with courage and sensitivity. All right, that's it for me. <laughs> Thank you, Isis. Um, the, the, the comments that you just made remind me um, the, the, the difficult time that we had when we were discussing these topics and how to put them on a different language, which is English, when, when most of these experiences that we were reading or that we somehow following the documentaries that I was analyzing were, were in Spanish. So thank you for, for bringing those memories back, uh, those important memories about the book, those cultural practices that, that I choose to engage with. And, and, and now uh, I, I, I wanna take a few, a few minutes to, to say thank you. Uh, I have expressed my gratitude to Sylvia and Isis for being here and commenting my book. But I also want to say thank you to, to Sean, who, who's, uh, who's there or who must be there, who must be around. Sean was my, my editor, my senior editor at Palgrave. He was the person who believed in the project from the very beginning, who saw the project with a lot of potential and who also saw that the project needed a lot of work. So thank you for, for, for that encouragement to, to Sean Vigil, who's now working at, at Temple University as a senior editor. Uh, Temple is, is very lucky to have him. Thanks for that, Sean. Um, I also want to say thank you to uh, um, the network of Periodistas de Apie. They were very open. They were very, um, they, they were very interested that somebody was trying to understand a very specific piece of their work connected to relatives of disappeared. So when I contact them for, for an interview, they, they accepted, uh, they, they opened their office and I had the opportunity to, to meet them and, and do like a lot of interviews about the documentary that I discussed in the book. Uh, the title of the documentary is Buscadores, which is about family relatives who are searching their missing loved ones in Mexico. Um, so, so thank you for, for, for that support. Uh, I also want to thank you um, the, 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 the really great support that Isis and I had from Manuel Gutierrez Silva. Um, I'm not sure if Manuel is there, but Manuel was uh, the external eyes 
of the translation. So it was giving us a lot of comments, giving us a lot of uh, suggestions to improve the text. Uh, we, we had a very funny story uh, with Manuel because we, we hired Manuel to help us with the index and he ended up helping us with every single aspect of the book. So thank you Manuel for, for your criticism to the book, for the suggestions to the book and for your smart reading of the book that, that really push me and, and push ISIS to, 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 to work the text better. Um, I also want to thank you to, to the people that took the time to read the book for, for giving an endorsement. Um, Diana Taylor from, from NYU, Carolina Robledo Silvestre from the CSS in, in Mexico, uh, Osvaldo Zavala from City University of, of New York, and Shelly Movement who's uh, working in, in Canada. So I, I, I really um, appreciate the reading and, and what I really enjoy is that uh, and I'm happy about is that all of these um, scholars, very well-known scholars who endorse the book, come from very different fields. They come from cultural anthropology, come from performance studies, uh, come from literary and cultural studies, and, and, and that means a lot to me because I, I also wanted to, to make an emphasis on the interdisciplinary perspective that I wanted to to discuss in, in the book. Um, as Isis was mentioning, the, the, the works that I choose to engage with and to discuss in this book are, are atypical since they are not uh, only literary texts or specific uh, fiction works. Uh, I, I engage with non-fiction works like journalistic chronicles and um, documentaries. Uh, I also want to say thank you to, to my family. The, the support of the family is essential in this kind of long projects. Uh, the support of them is, is vital. It gives you adrenaline, it gives you courage, it gives you motivation. Um, the only words that the book has in Spanish is a dedication to my daughter, Luisa. I, I decided to keep that dedication in Spanish. Uh, also the, the support of, of my wife. Barbara uh, was very important for me in, in, in moments that, that, that in reality you feel that you cannot continue writing you know, such a difficult book and, and you feel tired and things become much more complicated than, than you expect. So thank you for, for having that adrenaline uh, behind me and, and also my family who, who lives in Mexico, my father Raul, my mother Adriana, uh, my brother Rodrigo, it's, it's, it's always and an immense support to have a network of people that are constantly uh, checking on you, making sure you're doing well, you're eating well, but also that you keep working on your book. That's, that's, that's amazing to have that kind of support. So a mi padre, a mi madre, a Rodrigo, gracias for, for that support. And, um, and well, I, I, I wanna just uh, make a few uh, comments about the book. Um, what, what do I mean when I speak about a crisis of human rights in Mexico? And this is like the very first question because we, we constantly hear that the human rights crisis in Mexico and, and it becomes some kind of uh, leitmotif in the, in the media that we do not stop to think about what are we talking about when we are speaking about the human rights crisis. So um, in 2018, 2019, there was a very interesting report by scholars from the CIDE, the Center for Research and teaching in economics, and, and they define it very clearly what was happening in Mexico and why they were speaking about the human rights crisis. They say that there are like two factors that should be uh, studied to understand why we're classifying Mexico 
as experiencing a human rights crisis. And the number one is the severity of the crimes uh, that were occurring in Mexico and that are still going on in Mexico. I'm speaking about for disappearance, I'm speaking about torture, I'm speaking about massacres in, in the country. And the other is that these kind of crimes have like a very high impact. Uh, and, and that's why I'm very interested in the murders of journalists, the murders of, uh, the murders of activists and community leaders that are defending the human rights. So that's, that's something important to, to mention, to, to have an idea of, of why are we talking about a human rights crisis in Mexico? Because both things are currently happening. The severity of the crimes that are occurring in Mexico and the high impact of these crimes not only for the society, but also for um, other uh, people that are involved uh, in, in these kind of uh, crimes. Um, the other aspect that I want to highlight is that the central role of the military forces or the militarization of the public security in Mexico. Um, this is another reason that the, the war on drugs has, has been a failure in, in the country because the, the way that the different administrations in Mexico have tried to tackle the problem, I'm speaking about the Calderón's administration, Peña Nieto administration, and now with Andrés Manuel López Obrador, is through the militarization of public security. Um, instead of, of, of diminishing violence in the country or, or putting down the violence, we have uh, several uh, human rights denounces by, by different persons in the country. Uh, the number of people that have been killed has increased. We have more than 350,000 killed during the period of uh, war on drugs, starting with President Felipe Calderón, 2006, uh, continuing until today, 2020. Um, we have also a major issue of lack of accountability that, that Silvia was, was explaining. 99.3% um, of the crimes against journalists uh, are not solved and are not investigated in many cases. 95% uh, of the crimes against Mexican citizens uh, are not solved or not investigated. So we, we, we have a, a big uh, issue of, of lacking accountability in a country. Um, we also have, uh, as part of these high impact crimes and the severity of these crimes, a forensic crisis in Mexico, more than 35,000 bodies remain unidentified in Mexico. We have the bodies, we don't have their names, we don't have their identity, and we don't have like the, the, the human resources or the infrastructure to, to, to find, to match the identity of those bodies. Uh, we have also a crisis of forced disappearances. More than 75,000 people in, in my country have been disappeared. Um, we don't know where they are. Uh, we don't know in most of the cases who disappeared these people. And, and we're missing that important part uh, that Silvia was describing of this transitional justice framework. We don't know the truth. So if we don't know the truth, we don't have access to justice. And, uh, and we're also missing the other steps of the uh, transitional justice framework of reparation and the, uh, and the, and, and, the, and the kind of, um, how can I say it? And, and the kind of having the certainty that these crimes will not be repeated and committed again. So those four steps are impossible to, 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 to develop 
in, in the context of Mexico because we're missing the truth and we're missing the justice in all these crimes that I have mentioned. Um, I also wanted to say that, that in, in, in this book, what I wanted to do, uh, and, and this is describe it uh, using this kind of necropolitical framework, is try to understand the dimension of the human rights crisis through uh, a perspective of which are like the, the, the cases that are in, in a certain way that have a very high impact in the media, but also in the society. And, and, and these crimes, what I was trying to connect them is with a control of certain aspects of, of, of Mexican life, control of territories. That's why I speak about the control of territories where the Central American migrants cross without state protection, without, um, without any kind of uh, support by, by, by state authorities in their transit to the United States. So the, the ones who control the territory are the ones who control the bodies of the Central American migrants and the lives of the Central American migrants, which by the way, according to, to several organizations, and I quote the, the most updated data from Movimiento Migrante Mesoamericano, we're speaking about 120,000 Central American migrants that are disappeared in Mexico. So the, the official data that we have from Mexico of 70,000 that I just mentioned, do not include the 100,000 um, Central American migrants that have been disappeared. Um, I also wanted to speak about the crimes against journalists, crimes against the press, which are not only crimes against the freedom of expression and, and, and the liberty of the press, but they are also crimes against the, the, the people who are lacking truthful information. Um, uh, the, the crimes uh, against the press, we usually think it's only crimes connected with freedom of expression, freedom of the press, but also we as a society end up having like, like a void of information and, and having to get that information or those pieces of information sometimes, like in the case of Mexico in 2012 and 2015 through social media, when random people became those journalists who were using Facebook, using Twitter or using different technologies. To, uh, to, to, to be able to promote and to circulate information that was missing from, from official media and from journalists who were threatened in Mexico. And also when, when I was uh, thinking from, from this necropolitical perspective of the control of territories, the control of information, I wanted to also highlight the control of, of, of the communities, the control of the social body of Mexico. And that's through a strategy of terror, which is uh, forced disappearances. This is not new for Latin America. This is something that had happened in Argentina during the military dictatorship. This is something that happened in, in El Salvador and, and in many countries in, in, in Central America, in the case of Guatemala. And what is very much interesting in the case of Mexico is that these crimes are happening in a so-called democracy which is different when we speak about the dictatorships in the case of Argentina uh, or in the case of Chile. So uh, what, what, what is interesting is that the, the people who are leading the, the human rights investigations, the people who are trying to find who are the persons that are disappearing, their missing loved ones, the people who are searching for truth and people that are searching for justice is, is not the Mexican government. Are the families, are the relatives, are the mothers, 
who have become uh, human rights activists, not because they wanted to become human rights activists. It was not their choice. It was not their election. It was not what they were uh, thinking they will become uh, at the age of 40 or 50 years old. It was out of necessity of trying to find answers in, in a similar way like the mothers of Plaza Mayo were searching for answers in Argentina or the Comité Oreca was searching for answers in Mexico, Las Comadres in, in, in uh, El Salvador. So what we see right now is groups of, of relatives. Uh, most of them are women, but we also have like men, family members who are searching their missing loved ones. And Ayotzinapa is the paradigmatic case in, in the context of Mexico. The, the case that really uh, was able to open the, the, the eyes of the world, I would say, because before Ayotzinapa, the crisis of Mexico was not defined as a human rights crisis. It was more defined as a situation connected to drug violence and uh, confrontation between state and criminal organizations. But when we finally start kind of finding what happened with the forced disappearance of the 43 students and the involvement of the police authorities in Mexico in a state level, municipal level and federal level, the involvement of the army, the involvement of other criminal organizations and the work that the Mexican authorities were trying to do to uncover the crimes. That's when you really find out that, that, that Mexico, at least from the perspective from international organizations, was experiencing like a human rights crisis that the local non-governmental organizations were denouncing since 2006, 2007, when, when the war on drugs started to, to become a major problem in Mexico. So Ayotzinapa in that case uh, was like a very paradigmatic case that for me was very important and I wanted to highlight it in, in the very last chapter of the book. And what happened post Ayotzinapa, which is like a very interesting phenomenon, the, the families of, of the students of Ayotzinapa who were searching for their missing loved ones motivated or other families around Mexico to do the same thing, to start searching their missing loved ones in, in different areas. Uh, and I'm speaking here in regions that were controlled by criminal organizations, regions in the country that were uh, very much um, forbidden spaces for society to enter. So uh, just listening a little bit of what the journalists in, in, in the interviews that I was doing were saying, this uh, idea of getting into these territories, a mother with their, with their children and the mother with the father of the missing loved ones entering these territories is a pure act of love. And, and, and acts of love in those circumstances are acts uh, against the fear and when the people uh, loses the fear, they're not afraid to die. And, and that's what, what you hear in, in many of these testimonies in the documentary of the people, no? Like they, they were ready to, to enter to these places that the Mexican government didn't want to search, that the Mexican government was pretty much saying, well, we're not going to search for their missing loved ones in, in those regions. So I wanted to, to highlight that. And, and, and just to, to, to finish uh, about what uh, Isis and Silvia were, were explaining, I use the concept of vulnerability in, in two ways. Um, the very first one is what uh, Silvia was describing from the very perspective of Judith Butler and, and vulnerability uh, as um, also as a way to think about resistance. We, we usually think vulnerability connected to passiveness, 
defenselessness uh, when we speak about human rights victims that are unable to speak for themselves, that are unable to, to do um, some kind of um, collective action uh, to speed up their collective processes. So uh, Judith Butler in her very last books explains that uh, vulnerability is not, in, is not against political action or collective action. It's much connected to the resistance. So that's one. And the other vulnerability is, is, comes from another feminist theorist, Erin Gilson, that uh, when she speaks about vulnerability, she speaks about us as a society and us as our capacity to open ourselves to the suffering of others. You know? This kind of way to connect with others means that we are not um, kind of being uh, unempathetic, but being empathetic with, with the people. So that will give us as a society to learn more, to, to get closer to others people suffering by, by being open to the suffering of others. And another concept that I like very much is what uh, Cecilia Sosa describes as broader communities of mourning. Uh, this is not only an issue of, of victims in Mexico. This is not only an issue of, of the families of those victims. This should be an issue of everyone Mexican citizen who wants to be done with this human rights crisis. And I wanna give you a very brief example and, and, and I'm gonna be done with, with this example um, with, with in this presentation. The, the cover of the book, uh, I have the book here, is by Prometeo Rodriguez Lucero. And Prometeo, when I was doing an interview, he was telling me, and also Jimena Natera from the Red de Periodistas de Apie, they were saying that when they were presenting the documentary of the relatives who were searching their missing loved ones, Prometeo was in the University Iberoamericana, which is a very prestigious private Jesuit school in Mexico, where, where there's like this idea that the involvement in politics of students is, is, is not as strong as in the public universities. Um, I maybe disagree with that in, in some ways. Uh, but what, what, but what uh, Prometeo was, was telling the, the students is that when when he was working on this documentary and when he was like doing all these stories and, and recording the documentary, he was trying to connect those stories with a situation that he experienced during the Mexican earthquake that we had um, a couple of years ago. Uh, in the Mexican earthquake, uh, many people came out with their shovels to help other people, to support other people, to feed other people, to, to be present in order to support other people's needs. So they, they put in the shoes of other one. So what Prometeo what was saying, well, the, the crisis that we're living in Mexico, the forced disappearances crisis that we're living in Mexico requires the similar commitment to bring out our shovels and search for their missing loved ones. And if you cannot search or if you're afraid to search, take care of other people's needs. Try to find opportunities to get engaged with those communities this is not an issue of only victims in Mexico. This is like an issue that should be also an hemispheric commitment. That's why I speak about Central Americans and that's why I speak about the involvement of the US in the war on drugs and the violence that is currently happening in Mexico. 
this is a, a, an emergency issue. This is an issue that should be discussed not only from the perspective of victims, but from these broader communities of mourning as uh, Christina Sosa, Cecilia Sosa explains in, in one of her really interesting articles about for disappearance in Argentina. So thank you, Isis. Thank you, Silvia. Uh, thanks everyone for being here. And, and, and we have uh, time for, for questions for, for Isis, for Silvia, for me. So feel, feel free to, to ask any questions. Muchas gracias. But if anybody wants to ask a question, just, just send it because Aurelia. Congratulations. I'm very happy for your book and I'm eager to read it. Um, and I, I'm, I'm very interested because I think what you are proposing is a reading of uh, not all the other tragedies in, in, in Mexico, but the, the potential of, uh, as you said, of like a, a mourning community, the potential of of resisting or constructing, building something else. And I, and I, I really appreciate that uh, point of view, not only, you know, like the victims and, and uh, seeing us, that only happens in, in the south of the border from the United States. So, uh, yeah, one question maybe is very nice, but I think it's, it's very important. So I appreciate also that uh, the book is written in English because it's, it's calling for a different audience. I would love to see it in Spanish as well. So like for uh, uh, readers in Spanish, that might be also very uh, interesting and, and, and it would be great. I don't know if this, this is possible, but uh, why, what, what is the audience you were thinking about? Why uh, in English and uh, what are you looking for uh, with this uh, with this work that you have been developing this uh, all these years, and I don't know, maybe we can do like a round of questions and then we can. Okay, so if, if you want again for for your work. Thank you, Aurelia. So if, if you want, I can I can take some of, of these questions and and then I can answer one by one. So I, I can take yours, Aurelia, and then I will uh, respond to to that question. So. Um, Anybody would like to address another question? Ah, Pablo. Hi, Raul. Thanks so much for this amazing presentation to Isis. Hi, Isis. Uh, to Manuel, also a friend of mine. It's not here, I think, but. It's a splendid, magnificent volume that uh, really re uh, requires all the recognition that it can have. It's very timely. Um, Mexico is uh, well transitioning to its second, finishing its second year of a new government. The Yatsinapa case has unresolved. Uh, there's a National Guard stationed in the southern border impeding the movement of migrants. So there was a, a huge struggle uh, throughout the last 12 years in Mexico. And then that struggle kind of concluded in the um, election of Lopez Obrador as a symbol of trying to 
do things differently than the past, trying to move on and trying to acknowledge the huge humanitarian crisis that you so brilliantly describe in your book. So I have two questions framing this, like what's, what this book means in the present. My, fir my first question is, how are you viewing uh, the recent, uh, the last two years of public policy and, and, and forms of engaging with these topics through the government administration of Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador? I don't think it's favorable, but I would like to know your opinion about it. And the second is, I've read many of your articles. I haven't read your book. Uh, but in many of your articles, what I really admire and, and love a lot is the idea of accomp accompaniment, how you have developed the idea of accompaniment, uh, not just by looking into the organizations, people, activists, even documentarians that accompany this movement, but also you yourself as an academic, also accompanying these movements and these other expressions of accompaniment of people, vulnerable people in Mexico today. So my second question is, uh, how do you see this role uh, moving forward? How much this book has allowed you to reflect on this, on, on this uh, very important role of uh, being an academic, a scholar, someone in the university, but also someone that tries to uh, revolutionize the role of the academic into a more accompaniment type of academic that writes books, teaches courses, but also is part of all these social movements as well. So those will be my two questions. Thank you so much. Gracias, Pablo. Qué buenas preguntas. So, so if, 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 if you want, uh, I, I can start responding to those questions and, and then I can uh, we, we can see if, if somebody else would like to, to, to respond to those questions. So I, I'm going to start with, with Aurelia. So Aurelia, when, when I was working on the book proposal, um, let, me, let me go back before I start working on the book proposal. The book was originally going to be published in Spanish. But unfortunately, the, the tenure guidelines in most universities in the United States is that uh, writing in Spanish and publishing in Spanish most of the time is, is, is not enough for getting tenure. So I wanted to play safe in, in that way. Uh, I think I, I emailed Isis and I told Isis, you know what, they are interested in, in the book, in the publishing house, but they want the book in English. So we, 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 I, I don't know exactly what to do. Um, so I, I want your advice. And, and we start like a conversation on that. And for that reason, we, we start kind of sending proposals to publishing houses in English. So that, that's something that needs to change. And this is very much connected to what Pablo was saying. Um, the other aspect uh, is that when you're writing your book proposal, and this is something that, that you know very well, they, they ask you which is the audience that your book is directed. So as more people that you can involve and as many disciplines as you can involve in your book, that's better for, for a publishing house in, in a way that, that they can put your book on, on different um, audiences. So I would say that, that the book is more um, directed to scholars, students for undergraduate and graduate level courses, uh, but also it gives like a very important perspective. And this is something that, that I knew by working with the law school. I think Michelle Piston is there. The, the, the law school, sometimes they, they need like specific facts and they need like a specific numbers and they need like specific context of what is currently happening in the border. So I was also thinking in my mind, 
that every chapter should have like a very strong historical, political context that the book could be useful for somebody who's, for example, um, trying to understand why a journalist is seeking asylum in, in the United States, why a Mexican journalist who, who's now in the United States is seeking asylum, and which are like the country circumstances that can strike the case of, of that asylum seeker. So I was thinking also very much, uh, because I was working with, with the law school for, for the last three years, I have been working with Michelle Piston, with my colleague Caitlin Berry, and that gives you like a completely different perspective of things when you speak with lawyers, and, and, and I'm glad to, to have that perspective. Uh, so from, from that point of view, uh, I, I was thinking also in that specific audience who are uh, in the context of understanding the regional circumstances in, in Mexico and, and human rights. Uh, of course, it's for an audience uh, uh, who's activists or non-governmental organizations. Um, it's also a book that I have been sharing with some um, family members who are doing activism in Mexico. And, and, and although the book is in Spanish, they may follow, it's in English, sorry, they, they may follow some of the ideas in English. So th that's pretty much the, the, the audience that, that I'm kind of uh, addressing. Um, responding to, to the question of, that Pablo, or the two questions that Pablo is, is asking here, the, the cultural productions that I discuss in the book uh, are framed in the context of Felipe Calderon and Enrique Peña Nieto. Uh, I didn't have time to include other cultural productions to speak about what was currently happening with Andres Manuel López Obrador, and I was in the process of finishing the tenure. So uh, I was putting together the end, a very last piece of the book and the, and the dossier for tenure, so I, I couldn't really get into that discussion uh, on, on what was happening during the first two years of Andres Manuel López Obrador as president. Uh, the other important aspect that, that I didn't mention, and, and Pablo's question is going to allow me to, to express and talk about this, is that I'm, I'm leaving behind like a lot of human rights violations in my country. I'm not speaking about femicides in Mexico, which is something that other people have, have been writing about, and, and I didn't have time to do that specific research, um, the, the research that I, I did, and I'm glad that this is explained the background of the research that I have been doing in the past years is very much connected to um, uh, enforced disappearances and uh, the case of justice and cyber and activism and the right for information. So uh, I don't speak about violations against indigenous communities. I don't speak about other crimes committed against um, women, which, which is one of the most important and one of the hardest topic for the uh, uh, administration of Andres Manuel López Obrador. Uh, in Mexico, they kill 12 women every day, and, and, and the, the, the government has been unable to, to tackle that issue, to listen to feminist groups, and to develop like a strong policy to stop those, those crimes. So, so from, from that point of view, from the point of view of the, the migrants that uh, have been struggling with, with this new government, I think there were like many hopes with, with this new government to have like a more humanitarian treatment of the migrants while entering to Mexico. We have seen um, a very uh, resentful government who have been uh, militarizing the 
U.S. the the Mexican border with 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 Guatemala uh, even more than when we had it in the previous administrations with Peña Nieto and Calderón. And obviously, this is part of the of the pressure from from Trump's administration. No? So in, in in that way, um, we we can see that the the pressure that is putting the U.S. government into the Mexican government is having uh, an effect. And the effect that we see right now is that there is more violence right now against Central American migrants than, than, than in previous years, or it's much more difficult to make it to the border than in previous years. Uh, the other aspect that, that has shifted is that Mexico is now hosting or, or receiving uh, the, the Central Americans who are able to make it to the border until they get their asylum interviews in, at the border in, in, in the past. Before the Trump administration, the, the asylees were able to do their processes in the United States, and now it's, it's, it's impossible for them to remain in the United States. They have to do that in, in the border, which is much more dangerous for them uh, due to the context of crime. So from, from that point of view, I think that, that we, we haven't seen uh, a transformation of the country. We, I think we were very, very optimistic on, on, on things that were going to swift and change. I see, however, more political will, which I don't think it's it's enough. Um, you you may see um, more um, empathy from some um, people next to Andrés Manuel López Obrador, who are trying to work closely with family relatives in in some cases. So I I, I see at least uh, from from López Obrador administration more political will to tackle certain issues. But other issues, like specifically talking about migration and femicides, uh, the the response from the government has been uh, una mierda, no? Um, the the other question that you were asking me about the accompaniment, it, it's something that 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 I have learned from people that are not in my field. That people are working more closely with um, human rights. Uh, victims of human rights uh, and reading, for example, the works of Carlos Martin Beristain, who's Alasco, and Mikel, I think, is going to be happy when, when, I, when I say that. He's, he's from the Basque country, and, and what he has been doing in, in his works is like a systematization of experiencing of accompanying victims of, of severe human rights violations in Guatemala, in Spain, in, um, in Mexico, obviously, with the case of Ayotzinapa, uh, and also, uh, I think that when, when I have been able to, to participate in, in different actions or caravans with uh, different organizations, I, I have like a very vivid experience. Uh, the first time I was uh, accompanying the caravan of Central American mothers, when I was interviewing a mother while uh, she was um, uh, searching for for his missing son, and 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 the the first question that, that the mother asked me before I asked her a question, it was, "Are you a journalist?" And I say, "No." And 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 I and I saw the disappointment in her face because, from from a perspective of somebody who's searching for answers, searching for truth, having a journalist next to to her, it it makes the case more visible, no? So then I look to myself and I say, this is catching out. Sorry, no, I'm not a journalist. I'm, I'm a scholar interested on, 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 on the story of, of, of these women. 
So what, what else I am, no, in, in this kind of context? What, what, what else can my reflection on, uh, on, on this testimony, why I'm asking these questions to, this, to these women uh, and how I'm gonna be able to, to, to work with those testimonies that they are giving me. So, so for me, it was like a very ethical struggle in, in that moment when I was trying to say, I am not a journalist. Uh, and then my, my, my answer was like very natural. I'm just here accompanying. So from, from that point of view to accompany in, in, that, in that context, in that specific caravan was for me like a vital way to describe that I was there to, to do whatever they need other people to do in that specific case, no? to walk with them, to hug them, to listen to them, to, to laugh with them. We, we laugh a lot in, 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 the, in the caravan, even though we were searching for, for missing relatives. These, these women like to laugh, they like to dance, they like to joke. Uh, they, they, they are like full of life, they are like full of hope. So from, from, from that point of view of, of accompanying, I, I wanted to, to say that uh, I am here because I wanted to be present. No? And, and being present in that way means I'm, I'm going to be uh, as close or as, as closer as I can. And, and I also am going to try to find out ways to reflect on my work as a scholar to discuss these topics in a, in a way where where scholars are also engaged and have empathy and, and can theorize on that empathy, can theorize on that accompaniment, and can also be able to, to remove this uh, incredible uh, stigma of connecting activism and scholarship. So I think that's one of the main reasons that, that I wanted to write this book to, to somehow being able to, to get all those experiences around connected, not only from the reading materials that I had next to me or the documentaries that I was watching, but also those kind of experiences that, that build my political position on what is currently happening in Mexico. And I guess accompaniment in that way made me aware of, of, of those situations by, by just being there, by being present in those contexts. So I'm um, not sure if somebody else has a question. Terry. All right, good. I'll unmute it now. I had a question about like the, the specific communities of mourning that you have mentioned throughout. I'm specifically curious about um, like if the, if the families of the victims of the drug wars have been like as organized say as like the organizations that came out of like the cold war dirty wars in mexico like the organization of rosario ibarra and like like have there been a lot of relationship between the organizations of that period and the current period in which the families of the disappeared have played like a very major role Okay, uh, th thank you for, for that question, Teddy. Um, I have to say that Teddy is uh, one of my students. He's working uh, at the law school as an interpreter and, and he's applying for a Fulbright in Mexico uh, to study the dirty war. So uh, Teddy, just to, to, to respond to your question, uh, what, what happened in Mexico and what is very interesting about the movement of victims in the countries that it was until 2011 
the, the violence started in 2006, but it wasn't until 2011 when you start seeing like a more organization and collective action of victims in Mexico. And this was caused by what Silvia was describing with, with the death of the son of, of a poet in, in Mexico, uh, the son of Javier Sicilia, the poet, the journalist, the philosopher. So Javier Sicilia, what, what, what he did was like a very interesting um, action. He was, um, he was saying to everyone in Mexico, my, my son should not die. My son was innocent. And, 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 and the responsible of, of the crime of my son is the president. So, so those words were very strong in addition to, to what he was saying. All the sons of all the families that have been killed in this war are also mine. So he, he embodied this kind of spirit of the moment. Uh, this is a phrase from Javier Barroso. Uh, Javier Sicilia became the spokesperson of, of, of a movement that wasn't created in, in Mexico. In, in five years, he didn't know he was attracting many, many people. And what he did was a very interesting um, act. Uh, he walked for three days from the city of Cuernavaca to Mexico City. He was like stopping in different parts of, 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 the, of, of the highway from Cuernavaca to Mexico. And when he arrived to, to, to the Zocalo, to the main square of Mexico, he had around 50 to 60,000 people accompanying him. Uh, so using uh, what Pablo was saying, uh, he had like a platform to speak about what happened to his son. He had a platform that for the very first time let other people speak about their children that were missing, that were killed. And, and that created like the, the perfect climate to start structuring a movement of victims in Mexico. Uh, in, in, this happened in 2011. In 2012-2013, uh, you, you would see that, that, that the movement that was pretty much centralized by this movement for peace and justice started to break down because the families were not uh, getting answers. They were becoming more visible. They were becoming more, uh, the people were becoming more aware of the situation, but they were not finding their missing loved ones. And this is when the families start kind of breaking with the movement of Javier Sicilia and start creating like their own organizations. Um, in, in, in that case, you see that, that, that the victims be, became somehow uh, trapped in a very bureaucratic movement, like the one of the Movement for Peace and Justice, and they start creating their very small collectives that, 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 that start operating in different areas of the country. So by 2014, when, when, the, when the tragedy of the 43 students occurred in Iguala Guerrero with the forced disappearance, uh, and, and the people and the families and, and the police start searching those 43 students because there was a lot of pressure locally, nationally, and internationally. That's when you see those collectives for the very first time searching their missing loved ones because they had already broke with the very bureaucratic apparatus of the movement for peace and justice. They were creating their very small networks of relatives in their, in their cities, in their states. And when, when, and when they saw the families of the 43 searching their missing loved ones, they say, we're gonna do the same thing, no? And we don't care. And that's when you see mothers with shovels searching and digging in the ground for the remains of the bodies of their missing loved ones. That's when you see when the families start finding bodies and remains of, of their missing children. That's when you start seeing these uh, experts without credentials that I called uh, becoming more publicly speaking about the forensic crisis and the forced disappearance crisis in Mexico. 
that's when you see when they start training and taking different uh, courses on how to become, um, how, how to dig in the ground without destroying the evidence or destroying the fragments that they were finding of, of people that, who didn't know, that they didn't know exactly who they were. So that's when you see the professionalization of, of these uh, relatives due to the, to the circumstances that they had to face. So I, I would say that, that, the, that the movement of victims has like, like a three different moments. The moment of 2011 with, with Javier Cecilia and the making visible these, these victims and the emergence of the movement of victims in Mexico in the context of Calderon. Then the 2014 disappearance of, of the 43 of Yotzinapa when the, when the families pretty much uh, become the searchers other missing loved ones and create their own collectives. And then the post Ayotzinapa uh, moment when, when you see this professionalization of the relatives uh, in, in different areas of forensic science, human rights, etc., due to the circumstances that we are living. <laughs>